This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today I'm talking to Ross Benes about his book, Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. Well, it's nice to meet you virtually and to have had a chance to read your book. I'm kind of interested in what inspired you to write this book. You're from Nebraska. You were born and raised in a small town. Well, actually, you were born in one town, but raised your most of your life in Brainerd, Nebraska, which I'm guessing is a town that not many people outside of Nebraska have heard of. I'd say not many people inside of Nebraska have even heard of it. <laughs> well, that may be true. I, I My anecdote, uh, you know, I, I did spend some time in Nebraska many years ago, and um, I remember, what I remember is it's vast. It is just really big. It takes a long time to traverse, a little bit like Texas, and maybe not quite as big. And um, if you know somebody who lives in western Nebraska, it's very possible they've never been to the towns in the eastern part of Nebraska. So that makes sense. Yep. But you grew up there, you went to college there, and then you left. As oftentimes people do leave the Midwest to go to bigger cities, and you made your way to New York. So you have the perspective of being from a small town in the Midwest, which um, I think probably a lot of people in the East Coast and West Coast don't have a direct connection to. And your book is about, you know, I, it, what it feels like is you're trying to explain Nebraska to people who may not have ever been there. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of curious to know what prompted you to write it. What, I mean, you, it clearly written during the Trump era, and I wonder if that had something to do with it. A lot to do with it. Before Trump got elected, I, I was working on a book about pro wrestling, and my previous two books were about sex research. So, you know, I kind of cover all sorts of topics, and it didn't seem like Nebraska politics would be the next logical step. But after Trump got elected, I was still, you know, hoping to do this like pop culture book. But um, I got into so many conversations with people in New York City, where I now live, about what life was like in the rural Midwest. And there was just so much curiosity there that wasn't there the previous four years when people would, you know, hear that I'm from Nebraska. And I had enough of these like long conversations with people and a lot of back and forth that I was eventually convinced I should write a book about this. And, you know, people would eventually, they'd say, oh, you, you, you should go in depth and write a book about this. And I, I kind of bought into the, to the, van, the vanity of it all. And um, I realized I had a lot to say about it. You know, we're in this weird moment. And I thought if there's ever going to be a time to write about where I'm from and how the uh, perceptions of politics and government in those areas have changed, this would probably be the time to do that. So I pivoted and I did a lot of reporting and combined it with, you know, my memoir, personal experiences and produced rural rebellion. It looks like in order to do it, you, I mean, obviously you have personal experience. You grew up there, your family's there, you know, a lot of people there, but you interviewed a lot of politicians. What was their perspective? You know, I don't want to give away the whole story of the book. So, um, you know, I want obviously to, uh, for people to be able to read it and, and know what you're, what you said in the book without us telling them everything here. But I'm kind of curious, you know, you have a lot of people that you talk to on who are both Republican and Democrat. Um, and I, and I should point out, and you do describe this. It, there's one thing about Nebraska that I actually did not 
realize, and that is it has a unicameral legislature, which I think is the only one in the United States. Yep, only one in the United States, that's correct. And it's it was designed with some purpose, whether it works or not in the end, but originally with some purpose to be nonpartisan, uh, as well as to save money for the parsimonious residents of Nebraska. Um, and so formally, people are not identified as Republican or Democrat in the legislature, but obviously you're talking to people who are identified as Republicans and Democrats. And I'm kind of curious if you had, if, was there a, a, a like, what was the sense of the people that you were interviewing? Were they suspicious of you, supportive of you? Um, because you're a member of the press when you're talking to them and there's a, a lot of, um, you know, I think politicians love and hate uh, the press. You know, they need the press, yep. to, but they, they don't like, you know, they don't, they kind of, they want you to do their bidding. They don't want you to be independent and do your bidding. I would say the people who are most suspicious, the politicians who are most suspicious, are the ones who rebuffed my requests or didn't answer me. And those who chose to talk to me were kind of self-selected to be open to this sort of thing. And I, it was actually pretty pleasant conversations. And, and, and you know, as you mentioned, I, I interviewed people all over the political spectrum and they were most people were really friendly to me and people from both the left and the right were actually pretty open to chatting with me. However, uh, you still got times where people would try to give you their own political BS spin and, and you know, try to paint themselves as, as being a hero, but you, you kind of know when to weed that out, you know, when you, when you're writing the story. And what I got a sense of is that both, Republicans and Democrats believe their parties have changed a lot in the last 30 years. And they, they just become more different from one another. You know, the, the Republicans went to the right, the, the Democrats went to the left. And even I, you know, I talked to a U.S. congressman who uh, did like eight terms in Congress not long ago. The last one was in 2014. And he was just telling me how, you know, the party that it is today is drastically different than the one that he ran on. And it was interesting hearing those stories because uh, these are people who still identify with the party yet they, and they represented it in office, but yet they recognize that there's been a drastic shift that's happened. And in Nebraska, as the parties have become more different, they've uh, tended to side with Republicans. So we've had a pretty far right shift in the state and that's something that basically everyone is in agreement with, except for some Democratic Party activists, because um, they didn't want to acknowledge that they've lost as much power as they have. Well, and it's pretty clear that what's happened in Nebraska has happened in other places. I mean, Nebraska has some unique qualities, which you talk about. But I think many of the Midwestern uh, states have gone through similar transformations. And it, as you talk about, you know, you kind of imply in the subtitle it has to do with ruralness. And within the state or within those states, most Midwestern states have large swatches of rural country with smaller towns and maybe smaller cities and then a couple of large population centers, sometimes only one. And in the popu the large population centers, there's a significant difference in the political outlook and the cultural 
uh, nature of those areas than it is in the rural areas. So you see that in Nebraska between Omaha, Lincoln, and the rest of the state. You'll see it in Minnesota between Minneapolis, St. Paul, maybe Duluth, you know, a couple of other bigger cities, and then the rest of the state. You see it in, Mil- in, in Wisconsin with Milwaukee and Madison, um, and then, you know, maybe in bigger, in smaller towns all over the state. Similar divergence between rural populations and urban populations where partisanship reflects a different sort of culture uh, that exists in the two different kind of areas within the, even within a same within the same state but you can see that it crosses over all over America and I think that trying to figure this out why it's happened is something that everyone wants to well maybe not everyone but a lot of people are trying to figure out why has <laughs> this happened whether you're a Democrat or a Republican um, because it it causes people to be less capable of even talking to their neighbors when it comes to politics. Yeah, it definitely does. And there's been a big sorting of, you know, people moving to areas where the people who live around them tend to believe the same things. And, you know, you combine the physical sorting of, um, you know, people like me who are moderately liberal moving to Brooklyn uh, with the way we behave online. And we rarely encounter people whose opinions differ from ours now. So when we do encounter it, it's so jarring, you know, how can that person believe that? Uh, It's, you know, it's like a way different way of life, Uh, you know, even just having basic different opinions on something simple. Right. You have different worldviews. And I think that's the the variation of culture. Now, in, you know, in America, that has been true in the past where there were differences of culture um, that caused people to have differences of outlook. Um, and culture was often geographic in the past as well. But it does seem extreme, and, there, and, and we kind of observe the level of vitriol and uh, unwilling to, unwillingness to listen to others or to dismiss the other as somehow not American, you know, unpatriot. You're, if you don't agree with me, you're not an American. Um, and that's pretty, yeah. it makes it pretty difficult to have a country you know, there's a lot of talk about you don't have a country if you don't have borders, but I suspect that you don't have a country if you don't have an agreement on the basic belief system of what it means to be a member of that community. It, it, and it also just creates such an efficient government when you operate that way. When um, your whole identity politically is to oppose the other side, um, you're not going to reach much of a consensus to, to do anything. You know, it's just a lot of stalemating and shutdowns. <laughs> right, Mark, the unwillingness to compromise. But, but I think that it is when you, when you feel that you're right, the other person is literally wrong, compromise becomes impossible. Yeah, and, and you know, it's tough because it's all sorts of stuff gets brought into it too. You know, religion's a big factor in this too. Right, well, you talked, I, I thought that was very important that you talked about that um, as such an important factor that I, I think, you know, I, I feel like I'm, try to be really understanding of people who have different belief systems and different come from different places. I've lived in a lot of parts of the country. So I'm, I, you know, I sort of feel like I try to be understanding. Um, but it is difficult to know what it's like to be in a uh, modern, uh, small town today where the church or churches are so important to the social fabric of the community. And you talked about how, 
um, the abortion issue became essentially weaponized within, as a sort of combination of political and religious uh, belief systems, uh, having a great deal to do with why um, the Democrats in uh, Nebraska have lost so much ground with the population. Yeah, abortion is the first chapter of the book because I think that issue more than any other has uh, pushed Nebraska and other states in that region to the right. What, what I saw in my childhood was churches becoming more politically active and um, preaching much more about culture war type issues like abortion at the pulpit at the expense of focusing on like social justice issues like um, alleviation of poverty or, or environmental protection. And uh, effectively, you, you would see candidates endorsed by um, preachers or, or, or by denominations. Even if it wasn't official, it, w- it would effectively be an endorsement of a party. And um, as that's happened, the Republicans have become uniformly anti-abortion, and that's helped them in the rural areas where religious participation is very high. And the Democrats have become uniformly um, pro-choice. And that's made it difficult for Democrats to get elected in Nebraska, which has a very low population density. In the past, certain Democrats, like uh, Senator Ben Nelson, would get elected by appealing to conservatives, you know, whether it was um, voting against tax increases or, you know, culture war stuff like abortion, you know, he, he would be anti-abortion in a lot of his voting record. Uh, today, it's not really possible to run on that platform as a Democrat and win your party's primary. So uh, the the choice on that one issue has become more extreme. And in areas where the voting bloc has a big rural population, they've they've gone pretty heavily Republican. And I believe that's very influenced by the, the church where they receive so much social nourishment and brings their community together, but also influences their political perceptions. Right. Well, I think actually the... Um alliance of the Republican Party with the church has been purposeful on the part of the Republican Party. Uh, you know, it's a survival strategy for a, um, a party that is losing the de- demographically. You know, it's a minority rule party. And so it's a, mm-hmm. this is a way of, inf- you know, they because you have some, because of the nature of our political system where states have uh, power to offset populations, uh, a population density, um, you know, it does. It uh, rural states have that power, and I think the yeah. re- Republicans recognize the power of the rural um, communities in a way the Democrats were completely unaware of and simply just didn't pay attention. And it's not just at the federal level too; it's at the state legislature level as well. Because a lot of states, even if they um, have state legislatures that are proportioned by population. They still have fewer people in a district in rural districts than they do in urban districts. And, you know, every time there's a census coming up, there's a redistricting and they'll eliminate some of the rural districts and move them into urban areas. But it doesn't happen at a commensurate rate. The argument is, you know, they don't want one representative covering thousands of square miles. However, um, it biases towards rural areas uh, at a statewide level, not just a federal level. And that really favors uh, Republicans. And, and there's a really uh, in-depth book on this by a, a conservative scholar uh, called Why Cities Lose. It was written by a guy at the Hoover Institute, which is a conservative think tank. But it gives a lot of data showing how 
our system of government, obviously the electoral college, but even more finitely uh, at a local level, um, the state legislatures are um, biased towards uh, rural areas as far as like the, the numbers go. And um, when the GOP has honed in on those as its voting block, they can get more uh, power through fewer voters. Exactly. They can overcome the idea of one person, one vote because of the structure of the Republic. And they, and you're right, exactly right. That it's duplicated at, from the federal level down to the state level that, um, in the federal system, the states, the rural states have more inordinate power than the populous states. And within each state, the same exact phenomenon occurs. So that when you see a state like Nebraska, where the majority of the population is in um, Omaha and Lincoln, they Omaha and Lincoln have less power than the rest of the state, even though they have a greater population. Yeah, they have less power. Obama and Lincoln would have less power than um, their population numbers would indicate. Yeah, no, it's really, it is really interesting. But but the other thing, and you touched on this as well, and I think this is really important. There are kind of multiple strains, strands of support for this kind of what you call the rural rebellion. Uh, one is aside from the churches and the abortion issue, it's also Citizens United and the unleashing of corporate and actually billionaire um, financing so that an, a small number of individuals can actually inordinately control the political system. And, um, you know, and you touched on that as well. Um, but I, and the other thing for me anyway, is Fox news, because I think that that uh, kind of distorted worldview has been, they propagandized a worldview uh, to millions of people who have no, who, who where they take advantage of the kind of cultural mistrust of elites and a sort of faux populism, uh, which creates this mis, uh, kind of inherent distrust of anybody who doesn't agree with you. On the first part about the campaign finance deregulation, it's had a terrible effect on our nonpartisan legislature, and the continual gutting of those rules has just made our legislature uh, reflect every other state. It's, it's become much more partisan because candidates are chosen by people who can remain hidden. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we have a governor who comes from a family worth billions, and when someone votes against his wishes, they just dump a ton of money against their, the, that legislator, even if that person is a fellow Republican. So, you know, it's really made the executive branch more powerful because a wealthy governor during campaign finance deregulation era is a hell of a combination. Um, as far as Fox, yes, it's, it's, it's definitely had an impact. Yeah, you know, I, I would say maybe even more of an impact would be talk radio, um, you know, starting in the 80s. And on through today, um, both syndicated stuff like Rush, but also a lot of local stuff. And the, the viewership on that's a little harder to piece together because it's not all centralized like a TV station is. But uh, it had a tremendous impact. And um, I would say, though, in those rural areas, those messages resonate pretty well. Like people are really anti-government there. And when you get a, a shock jock railing on that, uh, and if they do it in an entertaining way, it gets people's attention uh, in a way that 
liberal media sources have been unable to. And you touched on that also, a sort of echo chamber effect where because of the migration of people who may not be in agreement with the people list, you know, who have those opinions, like even you, you talked about it. I thought this was very um, revealing. You know, that if you go to the local bar, maybe it's the VFW, and no one disagrees with you, you never come into contact with any other voice. So if everyone's listening to the same radio stations, they're all talking to the each other about the same things around the bar. Um, it kind of reinforces what their worldview is. There's never a chance to question it. And that's part of the reason why when I was a teenager uh, living in this town of 300 people, I was very much opposed to illegal immigration because my experience was just, well, it's illegal. It's in the name. And then what do I hear at the bar? It's people, you know, complaining about it. And they're listening to a media source of, you know, someone complaining about it being a bad thing. And these people, uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, making immigrants out to be law-breaking people who contribute nothing, you know. And um, you just hear that message from the guy at the bar to someone in the church parking lot to Fox saying it to, you know, someone saying it because they heard it on Fox. And uh, you're continually exposed to that single idea. And I just, you know, didn't really think about the benefits immigrants bring to their communities as much because we didn't have any immigrants at town. And that was the messaging that was around me. And, you know, that, that changed for me a lot as I moved to you know places like Lincoln and then to New York City, um, where they're much larger and more diverse and you, you encounter messaging of all sorts. But when you're in that isolated small town, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of easy to just go along with the current. Well, and, and you, as you talk about, it, it's probably also true that for people who are living in urban enclaves and never have contact with the people who uh, you grew up with, there's also a lack of understanding of their perspective. Um, you know, I think we all have a tendency to think that we're right in our in our mm-hmm. worldview, and that we know, you know, what we think is true is true. Um, but it, it can only be beneficial to hear, I mean, up to a certain point, you want to hear what other people have to say. What you don't want to experience is people telling you that your ideas are stupid or that you don't exist. You're not a real person. Um, and I think that that's really where, um, we have trouble, you know, when people kind of erase each other's humanity, uh, there's not, there's very little ground for, uh, communalism or for uh, sharing ideas and learning from the other. We may not agree. We, we may not always agree, even if we have experiences of what other people believe, but it, you know, you can't just um, deny their humanity. And you know, what's so tough is if you got, um, you know, someone from Brainerd and someone from, let's say New York city or some other, you know, big city that tends to lean left, you got them in a bar to talk about this stuff. They might actually make a little bit of progress and and realize there's things that they have a lot in common, but that's not what happens. Usually what usually happens is your interaction with someone who you disagree with is in an online forum and you're just all screaming at each other. Um, and you know, it's very counterproductive. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that, you know, so you can sort of identify, reasons why we are where we are. And that kind of gets me to asking you a question because, you know, I I think that 
um, you, you wonder now if with Biden being elected president and having a different um, perspective and a different way of um, operating, whether that will have an effect, uh, a positive effect on places like Nebraska, um, which, as you point out, have a progressive history, which I think actually most people in America probably don't realize the extent of it. Um, you know, that, I mean, I, I think it's actually amazing that you have uh, publicly owned utilities in almost the entire state, which is, you know, for me, I actually think that's the way utilities should be. Only state in the United States with 100% public owned power. Yeah, which is fantastic. And, you know, and that's, you know, across the Midwest, there's a long history of populism and uh, progressivism going back, you know, into the late 1900s, mistrusting big business, um, believing in, in rural communities and, um, you know, people working together for the common good. Of course, we've lost a lot of that. And the, um, um, a lot of the people that live there don't know that history, but you wonder if that, you know that history, that tendency toward a, a progressivism that they know, is not even spoken of as progressive makes people more likely to be supportive of some of the things that Biden is is doing. And I just wonder if, based on your uh, both your research and your experience, what you think of that idea. Well, I I think Nebraskans and similarly, uh, you know, people in other areas of, of rural parts of the country or, or other midwestern states will actually be more supportive of certain progressive ideas than their party affiliation alone would indicate. And, um, you know, if you can find uh, people to push a ballot initiative that's supporting something Biden's doing, I think you could see some support. Or if you find some sort of nonpartisan advocacy group that's um, supporting something that the you know Democratic administration is doing, you, you could see some broad support. However, if a candidate running as a Democrat is trying to further push the issues Biden's trying to push, I don't think they'll get elected. So it, once you bring in the partisan angle, two thirds of that state just shuts down once they hear the word Democrat, which is unfortunate, but um, it's kind of become the reality. Would you say then sort of as a, you know, kind of a political futurist, I know it's hard to do this, but do you think that, there is any hope for um, a kind of a progressive or even centrist Democratic Party in places like Nebraska? Or are we essentially, has it gone so far to the right that it would be a generational change for something to happen uh, to alter that? Well, it, it depends on, there's a few reforms being pushed in the state and in other states. And if those pass, I think you could see more democratic success in places like Nebraska, maybe not statewide winning anytime soon, but at least winning mayor races and congressional races where the cities are and being a little more competitive state ride. And, and some of those reforms I'm referring to is right now there's uh, people pushing ranked choice voting in Nebraska. I believe if, if that was passed, that would make um, moderate candidates a lot more likely to advance out of a primary in Nebraska. So um, that doesn't necessarily have to mean Democrat, but it could just mean uh, Republicans who aren't as dogmatic as the ones we're electing today. Um, that's another one thing. Another one is open primaries. We already have it 
uh, in our state legislature system, but people are trying to apply it to more races. I, I believe open primaries would give um, Nebraskans, you know, candidates much less to the right than what we've been electing. Like the, the, the general election would just look a lot different. Um, and I believe that would lead to candidates who would actually support progressive causes occasionally, even if they're not necessarily a progressive candidate. So, you know, there, there are little things like that, that if they do get those passed, um, whether in the state legislature or through a ballot measure, um, we would get more reasonable candidates. But if, if that doesn't happen, then I think it, it would it would take a full generation before you would see Democrats or even more moderate Republicans uh, regularly elected in the state. Yeah, it's pretty, in, in some ways, kind of uh, depressing. I mean, because, <laughs> you know, it, it, that's the other thing. You, you talked about how, and I think this is true, Democrats have a tendency to... Uh, uh, as a party, you know they they are they don't unify around a single um, person or idea. They're um, you know they're they're actually anti-authoritarian on some level, and um, which makes it messier and more difficult. And they fight amongst themselves, um, whereas the Republicans, as observably, um, you know, once a uh, primary is done, even if they disagree with the um, the candidate, they just say, I'm going to vote for the Republican because I can't stand Democrats. And um, I think that makes it harder uh, in a place where you're in trouble politically. You have to, It's harder to rebuild if you're in a kind of factionalized mode on the ground. Um, so maybe it'll take some sort of um, um, leader who can unify the Democrats and moderate Republicans, you know, maybe it has to be a kind of redefinition redef of what parties are in uh, political parties are, because what you're describing in a certain way is a, a, a Republican party in Nebraska that's so far to the right that it leaves out a large number of people who might otherwise, even though they call themselves Republicans, don't necessarily agree with the um, the most radical right-wing ideas. And as you mentioned in the book, as for instance, your parents decided not to vote for Trump. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. You know, what, what's been uh, tough for Democrats is there's a lot of people like my parents who were fed up with Republicans and fed up with Trump and they haven't been able to pull more of those people over to their side. Um, you know, one a state senator, a very liberal state senator, told me, um, I thought she put this very wisely, she said that Republicans can't be talked out of a bad candidate, whereas Democrats can't be talked into a good one. So, <laughs> you know, Republicans will ride off the rails with Donald Trump, but you have a, a fine candidate in the Democratic Party, and they'll find a way to find a problem with that person. Right. I thought that was very wise of her. No, that is, I think that's a really good description of it, too. Um I, I want to say one I, I can't uh, finish this without mentioning a really great quote that you had in the book by Paul Starr, which I thought was really definitional that population density predicts partisanship. That's a really powerful insight. I mean, it kind of subsumes almost everything that you said in the book, everything we've been talking about because it doesn't explain it. 
but it identifies what's going on in such a, you know, easy to understand way. I thought it, that was a great quote. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed that that quote, and you know that that correlation has only grown stronger. You know, when I was a kid in the '90s, the uh, level of support that Democrats and Republicans had in rural areas was almost even, and boy, has that changed. And yeah. um, it just keeps it just keeps change. It just keeps going. You know, further to the right in the rural areas, and uh, further Democratic support in cities, and this. Politics by geography is, uh, I think it's having a terrible effect on our country. Right. Well, it's not sustainable. I, I think it really, it, it, it causes fractures in the body politic, in the society, and it, you can't keep going like this. Something is going to break somewhere. I don't know what, I don't know how this is going to play out, but it just, it doesn't work. Well, um, the last year has been something. <laughs> well, that's for sure. Um, and speaking of that, uh, since your book came out during the pandemic, were you able to go back to Nebraska and, um, you know, when the book came out, are you able to talk to people there about it? Or, um, you know, have you been relegated to uh, Zoom and phone calls with everybody back home? It's, it's been Zoom and phone calls since the book came out. You know, I went to Nebraska several times while I was working on it, obviously, but yeah, I'm in this weird situation where I publish a book about my home state wow, this is the longest I've ever gone in my life without being home. And I'm going home um, in a few weeks because uh, I just got vaccinated and uh, a cousin of mine is getting married and it's just been too long since I've been home. But unfortunately, the last few months, I've uh, been stuck in New York because prior to vaccination, I wasn't getting on an airplane since I have uh, three chronic diseases that are autoimmune. So. Um, I feel better now about it, and I'm really excited to, to get back home, but um, it's been a weird time to, to release this book. Oh, yeah, definitely. That is unfortunate for you, and I, I hope that eventually you'll be able to get home and, and stay healthy. So, um, well, I want to thank you, Ross. I really appreciate your taking the time to talk to me um, about your book. Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. I really like the book, and I, uh, I like talking to you. So thanks for doing this. Well, thanks for having me on the program, David. If this has been Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk. I've been talking to Ross Bennis. Mm-hmm.